Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty, along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal. I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals to state senators to mayors to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Hey, everyone. Greetings from the New Deal's annual conference. Uh, It's exciting we get to do our podcast in person this week. Uh, My guest is Washington Senator Marco Leas. He's done innovative work around transportation, paid family leave, banning conversion therapy, and digital literacy. I'm excited to talk to him today and hear about what's next uh, in the state of Washington and for his leadership. Marco, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It's so great to be with you. So let's just start by hearing how are things in Washington State these days? You know, uh, I mean, I would say overall things are getting much better. As we come out of the really difficult period with the pandemic, we're seeing uh, our economy growing. You know, we're seeing people continuing to move to the region. And uh, we're really trying to tackle the big issues that are important to Washingtonians at, you know, the, the proverbial kitchen table. How do we deal with rising costs? How do we make sure that housing is within reach for more people? How do we make sure that educational pathways are there? And, you know, for folks uh, that are in our communities of color, that are in our LGBTQ community, how do we make sure we're building an inclusive state where everybody's welcome? And do you feel, how, how was the state impacted by COVID and, and the economic challenges that that created? I just think it's not possible to overstate how disruptive it was to everybody. I mean, that was, uh, you know, it's still with us um, in terms of the impacts on so many systems. But, um, you know, I think that the one lesson I take from it is our strong public health response led by a governor and a state health department that were following data uh, meant that we lost far fewer Washingtonians than many other states did. And so I think the response was as good as it could be. And now we're really focused on how do we rebuild and learn from the lessons uh, of COVID. And, and really what we saw was really uneven results. For folks that had great health care, you know, results were better. For folks that have historically been left out of these systems, uh, results were really, really tough. And so how do we learn from that and make sure that as we move forward, we're building a more inclusive, a more engaged uh, community where everybody has a state in a, in a bright future. Yeah, I imagine not just not just in public health response, but also in uh, all other policies. It really showed the divide and how we need to be more intentional. That's absolutely right. You know, my partner is an elementary school librarian, and just watching what our frontline workers, like our teachers, our nurses, our grocery workers, I mean, we saw really everyday heroes um, come out of this experience. And I really want to make sure we don't lose touch with that, that there are amazing people in public service that care about our communities. And how do we, in government, make sure we're standing with those folks to deliver the best possible service to the people we represent, but also to help bring our community together uh, to make it through, you know, what has been a, a more divisive moment than it should have been. 
Absolutely. So let's talk about how you found yourself in government, ready to partner with our, our frontline workers. What was your path to public service? You know, um, like everybody's journey, I think it's very unique. For me, I was active in a local chamber of commerce. I helped start a family construction company right out of college and was really active with our local chamber. And we felt a disconnection from our city government. Like city leaders didn't really come to our meetings, didn't engage with our local businesses in a way that we really wanted. And so I remember being at a meeting and it was like, you know, we really should have somebody from the Chamber of Commerce that's on the city council so that we have that relationship. And in classic fashion, everybody was like, we agree, it should be you. Um, and so I ran for the city council no good first. Deed. Exactly. You know, when you come up with a good idea in a small group like that, especially a volunteer-led organization, they're like, you're in charge of it now. Um, so I, I ran for city council, was elected. I was very young at the time, so I kind of got my start early. And then, um, unfortunately, the Great Recession took our business away. It was a tough time to be in housing development. We were building homes and, and uh, duplexes for folks to get their foothold into the housing market. So the Great Recession wiped us out. And so at that point, our state representative uh, was leaving to go do something else. And so I moved to that position and kind of have been doing this work ever since. And I think the beauty of the state legislature is it's so close to the people. You know, we really get to, you know, unlike folks in Washington, D.C. that have from our state have to fly a long distance, really live on the East Coast to do their work. I get to live in my community. We're in session a few months a year. We have a part-time legislature in Washington. And the rest of the time I get to be at home uh, watching the impacts of the decisions that we've made and also hearing from people about what's working, what's not. Um, and, you know, sometimes that's in the, in the produce aisle at the grocery store. <laughs> Sometimes that's why you're waiting in line to go to a movie. Uh, it's unexpected when you hear it, but um, you know it really is uh, really a, spe a special honor to be able to be representing the neighborhoods I grew up in and be so close to the to the community that I'm, I'm serving in the legislature. Yeah, when I first got elected, one of the uh, old uh, state. State legislators with a lot of experience is like, always buy your frozen food last because you're not going to get out of the grocery store uh, before it yeah, melts. For me, it's always the produce aisle. You know, it's <laughs> like that's that was always the toughest part, although, um, you know, now the produce aisle is getting a little easier. So. <laughs> Perfect. So tell me, I mean, I tell folks what it's like to be a state legislator. Uh, it is not, it's, you are uh, not as removed from the people. You are not flying back and forth across the country. You don't have big staffs. So, like, tell me what the day-to-day -day is like um, when you're trying to, to, to serve your state. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the biggest challenge is the legislature is called on to really weigh in on subjects throughout our communities and throughout our societies. I, I when I talk to constituents, especially students, I, I talk about how, like, I have to vote on what kind of eye drops you can put in your <laughs> eye. And I also have to vote on affordable housing and transportation and all these important issues, a lot of them things that I'm not an expert in. Believe it or not, I don't know which eye drops you should Come put on. in your eye. <laughs> and so, you know, we really rely on the voices of people who are engaged. I have, just to carry this eye drop experiment a little bit further, I have an eye doctor in the community that, you know, it has been on the National College of Eye Doctors and is a really, really smart person who gives me advice on, like, here's what the evidence shows, here's what is best practice for folks. And so my job is really to listen and understand the issues that folks are facing from little issues like eye drops to big issues like affordable housing 
and then to try and identify where are solutions. And that's really been kind of my focus throughout my time in the legislature is I don't want to talk about the problem. I don't want to stare at the problem. I don't want to talk about how bad things are. I really want to focus on what's going to make this better. How do we move you know, the proverbial, proverbial ball down the field uh, another yard, another two yards to make a, a difference? And so I'm constantly touring, visiting, you know, going to, whether it's in my community or in a neighboring community, like what's working? Oh, you guys have an affordable housing project that's getting folks housed. How did you do it? What are the, the keys to success? How do we replicate that in other communities and make sure that the good things that are happening in our state continue to happen and are happening all over? I think there's, I think we have people who listen and say, I'm really interested in these issues. I feel like <clears throat> that it would be it's too hard, too many compromises, not enough gets done. How do you take all those little actions and uh, um, small successes and turn them, scale, move them to scale quickly through a, through a legislative body? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, I think when I, I serve as the chair of our transportation committee and, you know, we try and really learn from our local partners about what is working and then scale those up. So we had a couple of jurisdictions, uh, transit agencies in our state that moved forward with systems where they really eliminated fares for, for users. Some eliminated them for all, some eliminated them uh, for some categories. And what we saw was when it's easier to use transit, more people do it. And so we adopted that in our most recent move ahead Washington transportation investment. And now in Washington, all youth 18 and under ride every one of our transit systems for free. And we're seeing youth ridership explode on transit systems. My local transit system, Community Transit, I love the name of it, um, you know, has seen at least a 50% increase. And they don't even know because the records of who was riding before and through the pandemic are a little hazy, but we know we've seen an explosion. And this is a group, you know, young people under 18, a lot of them can't drive yet. So this is a population that really needs that mobility access to get to school, to get to work, uh, to be in the community engaged. And so it's a great example of learning from some of our local agencies and what had been working and then taking that statewide to really do something impactful for everybody in our state. That's amazing. I want to talk more about transportation because Washington, you have ferries, you have transit, you have a lot of different ways to, to move about. Um, as chair of transportation, how do you figure out which areas you want to prioritize or work on or and the whole system has to work together. So how do you keep the big picture in mind? Yeah, you know, we are really fortunate that we have a pretty long history now, a couple of decades of bipartisan work to build our infrastructure in the state. And uh, for those who don't know the geography of Washington, we have the Cascade Mountains that run roughly through the middle. And so you've got the western part of Washington that is sort of rainy and wet and what we think of when we watch the show Frasier. <laughs> and then eastern Washington is much more, uh, you know, of a kind of continental climate where there's wine growing regions, it's drier, it's snowier. So a lot of variation in what our state needs. Uh, we have a really robust agriculture industry which people think of us maybe for Boeing airplanes or Microsoft or Starbucks, but we've got um, some of the best apples in the world. We grow, ironically, more potatoes than Idaho does, even though they've got the, the corner on the advertising there. <laughs> so a big agriculture market. And so our transportation system is really focused on how do we move people to where they need to go and how do we move goods in the economy to where they need to go. And so we have a couple decades of really thinking kind of systemically about that and how 
how do we build a unified system that moves people, whether it's by car, by bus, by bike, uh, by foot, by ferry, by plane? How do we move them where they need to go? And then how do we also make sure that our uh, the heartbeat of our economy, our freight mobility system is working to move, to move goods as well? So that's the sort of... Uh, foundation that we had set by leaders before us. And now my task is to add sustainability and resilience really to that and to think about equity in the decisions we're making. So uh, over the last couple years, we've really leaned into reducing our carbon emissions. Our transportation sector in Washington is our largest sector of emissions. So we're moving to electric vehicles, second highest EV adoption rate in the country behind California right now in our state, where our buses are electric. We have uh, some great companies that are developing electric long-haul trucks, so we're trying to electrify things. We also are asking questions about where has our infrastructure really damaged communities in the past. And we have some unfortunate examples where highways went right through our communities of color. In the city of Spokane, our largest city in eastern Washington, I-90, divided the black community. So the residents lived on one side and the businesses on the other after the highway was constructed. It destroyed 75% of a beautiful uh, city park in that community. So we obviously ne can't necessarily tear out I-90 at this point, but what can we do to reunify and reconnect that community, uh, acknowledging the historic mistakes that have been made? So these are some of the things I'm thinking about is how do we keep our infrastructure strong, but how do we also make sure it's delivering for resilience and sustainability and delivering for communities? So that's a big system, and then you've raised a bunch of big issues within that. How do you translate that? into what your goals are coming into the next legislative session. Yeah, you know, I think um, we have sort of a, an interesting pace. We write a two-year budget in our non-election uh, years, and then in our election years, which is coming up, uh, we sort of tweak that budget and really adjust based on what we're seeing on the ground. So we're headed into a short session that's really more focused on kind of how are things going, how is implementation going. And in our case, we've got you know, some real challenges with costs of construction going up. So how are we going to set ourselves up to really address uh, the challenges probably, uh, you know, after the election in 2025, as we write a new two-year budget, how do we make sure we've got the resources and the ideas uh, to make sure our system is continuing to operate well for people? That makes sense. I want to shift now from, from one big challenge uh, to another big challenge, and that's the challenge of uh, fake news and uh, the way that social media can divide and uh, misinform folks. You've been a national leader in um, digital literacy programs. Can you talk about what the approach has been in your state and why you think it matters? Well, I think the the story of how I came to the issue is so special. I had um, literally a high school teacher in Edmonds who had spent her career teaching, at that time, media literacy um, and really particularly helping her students understand how TV works. Um, and she was seeing this you know, new digital landscape emerging and students really struggling to navigate this. And she literally like wrote me an email and said, I want to meet with you. I want to talk to you about this and you've got to do something about it. <laughs> and so that started this journey, uh, Clara and I working on this issue. And what we have created now is I think a statewide framework for creating an expectation that each of our school districts is going to work with students and engage on this subject of digital literacy. And to me, it's so fun 
fundamental to living in a free society. Like the whole reason we have public schools, if you look back at our founders, is because they knew that people need to be able to read and write and understand information in order to be voters. If we're going to have a democracy where everybody gets a say, then everybody needs to be able to read and write and understand the arguments and the information that we're sifting through as citizens in this democracy. And in the 21st century with deep fake and AI driven technologies where, you know, even to someone that's a, a real expert in communication, some of these new images and new techniques are make it difficult for me to discern what's true and what's not. So it's no uh, accident then that our students uh, who are growing up in this landscape really are struggling. We also know, um, you know, basic things like advertising. We got statistics on the number of advertisements for alcohol or cannabis that young people are exposed to before they're even 21. Like we're living in an environment where our young people are getting bombarded by all kinds of messages. We had some amazing young students come talk about, you know, what. Uh, young women are told in terms of beauty and perceptions of, of body positivity. And unfortunately, the messages aren't great there. So our young people are getting exposed to a lot of messages. The question is, are we helping them be resilient and navigate to the trusted resources and being able to figure out for themselves what's true and what's not? So that was the core of it. So what we've done is created uh, a curriculum and standards to really help our local school districts embed this throughout their uh, educational experience. A lot of our key partners are our school librarians. So it's kind of fun that a few years after working on this, um, I ended up meeting a school librarian and I was like, wow, uh, we have a lot in common. I know what you're working <laughs> on. Um, but they are really at the front lines of making sure our students are better prepared. Uh, also, we're trying to enlist parents and community in this work, like in our researchers and our experts, so that Together, we're helping, again, not tell students and young people like what is right and wrong, but helping them navigate to how can they figure that out in real time. We've got to build resilient students, resilient young people that are ready for uh, what will likely be an even more disruptive media environment as we move forward. I want to pick up because you've talked about resilience in transportation. Now you're talking about resilience in digital literacy. Um, I think Many of us have come through the pandemic and all the shifts and changes we've seen in the economy and the world and recognize like we are in a constant state of change, if not chaos. And so trying to build systems that are more flexible uh, and people, uh, helping people become more resilient is important. Um, how do you think government should, should think about that challenge? You know, I, I think that particularly coming from the West, where we have this culture of self-sufficiency. You know, the people, both the indigenous people who occupied um, the, the lands of Washington state for, for millennia and the folks who uh, came, you know, 150 years ago to our state, all were sort of guided by how do we be self-sufficient? How do we, you know, figure out a way with the resources that are available uh, to make a good life for ourselves? So we've got that kind of culture of like, can do, how do we make it work? And I think we need to embed that with, you know, techniques of resilience, techniques of self-sufficiency for the 21st century. And that means, you know, how do I navigate a changing society? Whether that's disruptions like the pandemic or changes in technology, obviously the potential of artificial intelligence to change our workforce, to change our way of life is really profound. How do we make sure people have the tools and techniques and the training to be able to navigate that in a way that they can continue to thrive and be self-sufficient? I think it's embedded in kind of our, 
Western ethos. And I think I, we also are fortunate in our region that we had a ton of Nordic immigrants uh, that settled. You know, if you go to the Ballard neighborhood of Seattle, like everybody's a Carlson and a Nelson and a Johnson. <laughs> so there's a lot of that can do. If you look at our Nordic countries today, some of the most resilient and sustainable societies on the planet. And I think it's sort of that can do attitude, that sense that I need to be able to figure this out for myself, but also I need to do it in conjunction with my neighbors. And how do we sort of build a community that's strong together? Um, those, are, I think, are the values that we bring to it. And then today, as government, it's about creating the, the opportunities for people to get the training, get the support they need to make the best decisions for themselves. I think there's a vision of like, government will just go do it for us. And at least in the West, that's not a way that we approach things. We really think about how can government be a partner for us or a tool for us to achieve what we want for our families and for our communities. And that's what I'm really focused on. You know, the example of kids riding free on our transit systems is really about both empowering young people to be able to move around and do the things they need to do, but also helping families that are struggling with a lot of costs going up. What's one place where we can sort of take an issue off the table? And that is help make it a little bit easier. And I've heard some great stories about families that I, uh, my uh, legislative assistant was on the bus and he this family was trying to decide what to do for the day. They heard that riding the bus and the ferry were free. And so they decided to go for a day trip over to one of our uh, islands to check it out because it now was something that was affordable for this family with a bunch of kids to do. So. I'm trying to, uh, as we, in our work, make sure that we're unlocking the ability of people to live their best lives and to be healthy and strong as we move forward and be partners in that work. Speaking of people leading their best lives, uh, you're co-chair of the LGBTQ plus caucus. Um, talk about what the efforts there are to help um, that part of our community uh, lead their best lives. You know, I, I joke, when I grew up in the 90s, there was a lot of sort of right-wing voices that talked about the gay agenda at the time. It was like a front of mind for everybody. And so I joke that, you know, the gay agenda is really, really dangerous. It is we want to be able to own our own homes, raise our kids with good schools, save for retirement. <laughs> you know, it's the exact same agenda that every one of my neighbors has. Like our LGBTQ families, we don't want anything else other than the ability to live with dignity and to build families that are healthy and strong just like everybody else. Unfortunately, you know, historically our societies put barriers in the way uh, of LGBTQ people accomplishing that. And unfortunately, today we're seeing states do that left and right with, um, you know, uh, policies that are really targeted at trans people and particularly trans uh, youth. And so our work in the LGBTQ caucus is how do we eliminate those barriers to allow, again, being a Western state, how do we let people just live their lives with freedom and dignity to do what they think is best for their families? And, and that's meant making sure that health insurers can't deny access to services because of, her, of your LGBTQ status. It also means making sure that there's housing and job opportunities for everybody, but particularly for the folks that are most marginalized. Um, and it means making sure that our systems work. Uh, I spent a lot of time making sure our public schools are safe and welcoming. We were, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, the statistics around bullying and the connections to mental health and suicide risk were really strong. And I'm really proud that we've worked systemically to create schools in our state that are welcoming and safe for all of our students. We're not asking uh, folks to, uh, you know, to accept 
someone else's choices or to be a, a cheerleader for other people. We're asking folks to just create spaces where everybody is welcome to get the education and the training they need, and then we'll all move forward in our own way. And so that's really our focus in the LGBTQ caucus is what are those issues that are impacting our families and how do we make sure that everybody, regardless of their zip code, the color of their skin, who they love, what their identity is, can live and thrive in our state. Seems like a good agenda for all communities, right? Uh, <clears throat> add in a little resilience, and and uh, and we're we're it's a bright yeah, future. It's like a, a little uh, spice canister, a little dash <laughs> of resilience on there, you know. Uh, well, I want to thank you for joining us. We love having you in the New Deal, uh, and uh, we look forward to looking out and seeing what the models might be uh, coming out of the West, uh, the far, far West, where you can, uh, where you do have that self-sufficiency, but also um, collective commitment to the collective that that helps everybody. When I know you're an Oregon grad, so you got really <laughs> close to the to the best part of the West, but we uh, certainly appreciate what the focus on the work we're doing and excited to keep partnering. Thank you. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.